Blog Talk Radio. Leroy, boy, is that you? I thought your post-hanging days were through. Sunken eyes and full of sighs. Tell no lies. Ah. How many of you thought we'd start with that song tonight? Probably 100%. If you know anything about our guest, Leroy Boy Paul Fishkin is going to be on later tonight in about 15 minutes or so. Cruiser Mail, we're very excited about that, aren't we? We sure are. He's going to be a good guest. Yes, Paul Fishkin, of course, uh, Todd's manager with Woody's Truck Stop. He goes back that far. His roommate at one point, uh, most known in the Todd world for being with Bearsville Records. And he was at the Todd Survival Camp couple of years ago in the foothills and the feedback from that was tremendous as expected so we'll get to talk to paul we almost had him on the rut review show that we did years ago but uh none of it recorded <laughs> so uh, uh you were such a, a youngin back then yes i was very heartbroken but i'm gonna make up for it tonight we're gonna get to have him on tonight and talk about all kind of stuff um before we move forward i would like to dedicate this show to scuzzy and maggie Todd's dog, Scuzzy, passed away this weekend as well as my dog, Maggie. So show's dedicated to them. we got another show Thursday, by the way. And who are we going to have on then? That's a wonderful question. Two people, actually. At first, it was just going to be Dorothy Lawson, who uh, we had to reschedule. And we also had to reschedule Joe from the Columbia College in Chicago. So he's going to call in for a little while and give us the skinny on Artists in Residence program. And we'll have Dorothy on from Ethel. So you get us two shows, three guests, all in one week. Wow. Don't Better take my vitamins. Not bad for two retired people. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. We're on hiatus, right? Yeah, sort of. All right. Todd will hopefully be on as well soon with maybe Jen from Nottaway. I haven't even talked to her yet, but I figured that won't be a problem. But we were... Um, leaving Todd alone, of course, because he's been recording his new album that comes out April 9th. So I believe most of that time period of his getaway is gone, so we're going to hit him up and try to go ahead and see if we can get something going to discuss Todd Stock 2 and anything else, maybe the new album, whatever y'all want. And let's move on to Chasm for a second, Cruiser Mouth. Yeah, yeah, I hear there's some good news coming out of that camp. There is. By the way, I saw Chasm. Friday with Blue Oyster Cult in Biloxi, Mississippi. That's really a fun show. I know Lois and some others, um, Mark Steinberg, of course, works there. They were at the Connecticut show that uh, Blue Oyster Cult did. Dennis and um, Dave Cornelio went to that show. If you go check it out, I think you'll like it. Blue Oyster Cult, Don't Fear the Reaper, Burning for You. Uh, What's the other? Oh, Godzilla, one of my faves. Fun stuff. One of the best riffs ever. Yeah. So Chasm's got a reissue from Edsel Record, which is in the U.K. I've seen them re- release some of Todd's stuff like Runt and Ballad and those type of things. Um, this is the 1982 uh, album Chasm, and that is available on Amazon.com U.K. or whatever it is, Amazon.uk maybe. Um, hmm. We sent it out in our newsletter. If you're wanting to check it out, just find Amazon U.K. Or if you're confused about anything, you can always email myself at Doug at com or Melinda at 
M-E-L at RungaRadio.com. Yeah, it's just M-E-L. Yeah. Cruiser Mail? Yes, Doug. Hot Stock 2 is getting ready. It's going to be here before you know it. Seems like a long way away in June. It's going to be at the Nottaway Plantation in White Castle, Louisiana. And there's a new fireworks fund that has started. A lot of funds going on, but, you know, they're all for good causes. This is, and I know people are going, wait a minute, this is supposed to be a surprise, but Todd doesn't listen. Todd's not going to know about this probably. And if he does, it's not the end of the world. Um, (laughs) uh, Bruce Whetstone started this on Indiegogo, which is a site we actually considered for Michelle's Tiki Niki deal. Indiegogo.com slash Todd Fireworks Fund. The deal is uh, we're looking to do... Um, I think yeah, like 15, 15 minutes. minutes or something. Yeah, of massive quantity, high-dollar, cool fireworks, not your little sparklers like you have at home. These are the these are the real deal, like you see from a city or something on Fourth of July. So maybe he'll pull that off. There's um, tons of information on that website. Just go check it out. We might talk about that later on today or Thursday if we have some time. Tiki and Iki is still uh, the fun still going on. Our first crowdsourcing effort. Rungan Radios, it's to sell stuff, and in return, uh, when you buy something, it, it helps Michelle get a, an aquarium bar. We're hoping that she can get for the Tiki and Iki, which will be the restaurant in Hawaii, where her and Todd will retire. And it will also get her on a television show, most likely, Fish Tank Kings, which is a huge promotion. I mean, that's really what it's about, is getting that. Plus, it would be cool to have an aquarium bar. I've seen a few pictures of some. That's, that's pretty badass. Yeah. So what's that website, Cruiser Mouth? Uh, tiki, T-I-K-I, fishtank.com. And it's got all the info there, and and uh, you can see who's already uh, contributed and what they've gotten, whether it be a T-shirt or one of those fish hook necklaces or uh, a bar stool, you know. There, there's all kinds of things from, you know, price levels just all over the place. So you should be able to afford uh, the Feed the Fish Fund, for instance. What's that, 20 or something like 20 that? 20 bucks you want to donate, yeah. Yeah. It's not a return. It's not a donation. It's not a charity deal. This is You get something back. The hook necklace has been pretty popular, and there's the limited edition of those. And the thing is, it's um, we're going to try to get a deadline from Michelle soon for some of that stuff because she's going to have to get it made and needs to know the exact amount. And then that way we could tell you when that stuff will be shipped out. So be patient because we're still trying to – get people to buy a bunch of it first before we make like a t-shirt for example you know you don't want to make too many or or not enough and you want to have the right sizes and all that so those we'll probably have a deadline for that soon Uh, Todd's going back on the road I'm sorry what'd you say Cruise Mill I just said I said okay that'll be great (laughs) ah cool very good Ringo Todd Rundgren New Zealand Australia Nowhere in the United States, but we have international listeners because we have an international feel, and we are all about worldwide epiphany. <laughs> oh. <laughs> He's also going to Japan during that trip as well. Japan. We know we have Japan fans. And you can get that information. Also, the Ethel shows. He's going to be doing two of those in April. One's in um, Evanston, Illinois, near Chicago, and the other one's in Park City, Utah. You can go to Todd, um, and you can go to rungunradio.com and go to our Todd Tours page. And it'll take you to a couple links, uh, EJ and um, Roger sites that have details about everything. And speaking of the Rungren Radio, y'all, we actually have Rungren Radio merchandise. If you want to get your RR on, and what you can do is go to rr2.com 
and uh, pick what you want, whether it be a T-shirt or a hat, bowling bag, whatever. Get your RR on. I like that. Uh-huh. Rungren Radio on the number two dot com. Right. And, of course, you can go to the Todd store anytime you like, day or night. And uh, that's official Todd Rungren merchandise there. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they have some good sales going on. And and they're always coming up with something new. They've got new um, new stock of Todd Stock, the movie, DVDs. Oh, yeah, that's right. They just reloaded on those, and they always have good stuff on sale. And they're the ones that will be designing the Tiki and Iki limited edition T-shirt. We'll have that artwork for you soon, I hope. But ToddStore.com, that'll get you all official merch. And something new out, Cruiser Mail. There's a Facebook page that could grow into something bigger, like a book possibly. But it's Facebook.com slash R-U-N-T Greens, Runt Greens, uh, recipes for Todd fans to share. Perry Morelli started that, and it's up and live. And there's already a couple recipes on there, so maybe a new recipe book. Okay. There you go. Maybe something we can cook over an open fire and <laughs> not away at Touchdown. Yeah. Chestnuts roasting. Yeah, there's going to be. I don't think you want to cook over there because the, the cage is not to cook so so well. And I got a feeling that restaurant's going to have such good food and it's all paid it's for already. If you're going to Todd Stock, so well, actually, you got to go get lunch. You're on your own, so yeah, we could cook something. <laughs> Maybe a crawfish bowl. Yeah. Yeah, la shot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's pretty much it for our announcements. You know, don't forget th- this Thursday now, people. This Thursday, I know we're getting away from the Tuesday thing, but these uh, guests we've got have been very difficult to uh, get on Tuesday nights for whatever reason. Which you know, they're busy. It's all good. It's just um, we had to do different nights, so we'll do what we got to do to get them on here, so you can learn and hear from them and talk to them if you like. You're welcome to call in tonight, of course, six four six seven one six nine two six two. But we have plenty of questions for Paul. Plenty of questions. A lot of good stuff we're going to talk about tonight. Run album, ballad album, Utopia, Bearsville, American Idol, Albert Grossman, all kind of stuff. Yeah. Naz, drugs, a Wizard of Two Star. Wow. Uh, Easy on him now. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's having a little trouble on the call-in number. Hey, War was in our chat room saying he's having to called in. Call in, just hang up and try again, see if it works. Because i got a lot of people on here that are listening and I haven't heard anything else, so maybe it's just you. If not, we apologize. We always seem to have troubles with blog talk radio, but it's the best option we got. It's all we got. You know, well, it did now. say... Um, that uh, there's some issues tonight connecting to host dial-in numbers as well as guest lines. I didn't have any problem calling in, and obviously you didn't either. But um, Blog Talk says that they're trying to, they're working to resolve the issue. So hope that yeah. uh, Paul doesn't have trouble. I hope not. We definitely want to talk to Paul. That's hmm. we don't yeah. like problems. Problem's not good. Mm-mm. I don't think we'll. I think we'll be able to get through it. And, of course, everything's archived permanent here. And so if you miss it for some reason, you have to refresh, you miss something. And within minutes after the show, you will be able to listen to it in its entirety. And you can even download on iTunes. That's right. 
How about that? That's what I do, actually. iTunes was not around when Paul was managing Mr. Rungren. No. Technology's changed a bit. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. Just a lot. But uh, he's still doing some stuff. We'll get into some of that, maybe, some of the newer stuff he's been doing. He was mentioned quite frequently, if you didn't read Billy James' book, books about Todd, The Utopia Years uh, is the second one. And then the first one was A Dream Goes On Forever. A lot of stuff about Paul Fishkin in there, which we will use as information for questions. And, of course, you got Paul Meyer's book, which, by the way, Paul Meyer's book, The uh, Wizard True Star Todd in the Studio, the... Liner notes for the new Chasm reissue from Etzel were written by, guess who, Cruiser Mount? Paul Myers. Yeah. <laughs> He's an expert. Yes, Paul's on all the Etzel reissues, actually. So. Oh, is he? Yeah. You know, speaking of Paul, I saw, I think it was Veggie Girl. I'm pretty sure it was Veggie Girl went on Paul's page today or last night, and said that she was was excited that his book is now available on Kindle. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, or, or I don't have one of those e-readers, but I guess if it's available on Kindle, then maybe it's available on other ones. I don't know. Somebody just put that on the uh, chat room, too. Speaking of overseas stuff, the Rolling Stone issue with the hip-hop artist on it that has the Todd Data... Bill mm-hmm. Fricker, Todd Fans, Rolling Stone ad, page 109, mm-hmm. is available over in the U.K. now. So if you U.K. folks listening want to go find it, you might can. Get you a copy of it. Page 109, half a page, color. You'll see the purple. Todd pictures everywhere. Tons of fans. Names are on it. So you can find that now over there. We had our shot in the U.S., but it's over now. So if you snoozed, you loosed because it's gone. Yeah. Four different artists. You got Jay Z, I think it was, some Mr. Big dude. Eminem. G. Notorious B I G. Uh huh. And Eminem and who was the other Tupac? one? Tupac? Maybe. And Jay Z, yeah. I think. I think that was them. All four. Perhaps. Somebody bought them all, they said in the chat room. <laughs> oh, it's G, I'm surprised. <laughs> yeah. Lois, big fan, big fan. I wonder, I think she enjoyed, she posted some photos of the Blue Oyster Cult show at the Wolf's Den in Connecticut. Ah, okay. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Now I know why she put a picture up of herself with the Geico Gecko. There you go. I saw, actually, this was interesting, Blue Oyster Cult, and, you know, this is very common now with these bands from 70s, 80s. They have two original members, and they're the lead singers and guitar players, which if you had to pick, that's what that's the route you want to go. You know, you want the singers, and that's your first priority, I would think. Usually. And uh, they gave Chasm his moment in the sun. They played, um, they just kind of said, Chasm, before he was with us, he was with, and they did Joan Jett, and they did a little bit of I Love Rock and Roll. And then they did Rundgren, and they did Bang the Drum. And then they did Meatloaf and did one of his songs. I don't remember which one. <laughs> and uh, it was pretty funny. And so um, Foghat came on, too, after that, the show I went to. I don't think they were in Connecticut. But I could tell immediately that the singer was not an original member. 
And <laughs> turns out they only had one original member, and it was the drummer. And that was it. That's yeah. very interesting. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. Now, now, don't get me wrong. They were fantastic. It was a great band. It was a mix of people. The singer used to be with Humble Pie. The guitarist was with Molly Hatchet. I mean, it's a good fit, and they sounded great, but definitely not the original band. So. Well, and we've had Tony Stevens on, on this show. Uh, yeah. He was in Fog Hat, but now he's got his own deal called uh, Slow Ride. Yeah, I was thinking that um, the bass been... player might have been an original or early on player, but apparently not. I mean, he was the right age for it, but uh, not the case. Oh. All right, so let's see. I don't know what's going on with Mr. Fishkin. We just talked to him a minute ago, so let's say I'm going to shoot him a email right quick. If or if you're if you're happening to be holding online, please press one, and we'll know that it's you. Uh, I think that might be him right there. As a matter of fact, let's see. He has not pressed one. That it? No, that is him. All right, let's get him. Paul's been on for a minute and forty seconds. <laughs> oh. All right, Paul Fishkin. Are you with us, Leroy Boy? Is that you, Paul? Eight one eight. Leroy Boy. Mr. Fishkin. Hmm. Maybe he's having trouble. Oh. Uh, hmm. Hello, Paul. Hello. Well, maybe he'll call back. Or maybe something else is up. I don't know. Hmm. Good old blog talk. I don't know what to do with it. Let's all pause for a moment and have a moment of silence and <laughs> an adult beverage. <laughs> hmm. So that wasn't him at 818. Oh, uh, that's his number. But he's going to have to call back in, I think. Oh, yep, now he's gone. Okay, so let me ask you this, Christian Mal. What's your opinion on this? Leroy Boy, is that you? Is it Leroy, comma, Boy, is that you? Or is it Leroy Boy, comma, is that you? Oh, hey, Mr. Grammar Police. Uh, I don't know the answer to that question. Because we call him Leroy Boy, but it could be Leroy Boy, is that you? Could be. Leroy, hey, man, is that you? (laughs) <laughs> or, anyway, I think this is him. He can maybe answer the question. Yeah, let's ask him. <laughs> it's me. Hello, it's me. Hey, man, how are you? Leroy Boy in the flesh. Leroy Boy. So you, so it is Leroy Boy. It's not Leroy Boy, is that you? No, right? it's Leroy Boy. It's, it's, it's sort of Philly slang. It's Leroy. It's, yeah, Leroy Boy. Yeah, it's Leroy Boy, yes. Boy, all right. <laughs> we'll try not to call you that. That's probably a – was that really your nickname or just for the song? <laughs> no, not at all. I had a lot of nicknames. That wasn't one of them, but it had two syllables, you know. And uh, <laughs> that was poetic license on his part. And, uh, you know, no, it was not my nickname. <clears throat> all right. Well, hey, before we get into the – delve into the past and, and the run album, I definitely want to talk about yeah. that song. Uh, what what are you doing now? You were uh, you got a new business going, and what, how are things shaking out for you? Well, I, uh, am, you know, not great lately. It's been rough, but uh, I have um, I don't have a new business. I'm managing this girl named Laura Warsteller, who's really talented. She sounds a lot like Stevie Nicks in a good way, and uh, we just got a single out on her that's on uh, AAA now and. <clears throat> just starting. We've got about four stations so far. Hmm. And, so you're 
Yeah, so I'm managing, I'm co-managing this this girl. That's, that's uh, I'm working on a lot of other projects, including, uh, yeah, I'm working on some other projects, but uh, but that's specifically what I'm doing now, managing this wonderfully talented uh, singer songwriter. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Are you? And she's, yeah. What is that? Is there some background noise, or is that something weirdness going on with your phone? I don't know. Shit, no, there's no background noise here. I, I don't. Yeah, it was okay. It was some sounded like you were in an aquarium for a second. All right, oh, well, you're no, still I, in the music business, basically. I am still in the music business. I did take a leave <laughs> uh, four or five years ago. I did a entertainment uh, technology hybrid company that I helped start called Intego. Uh, and the idea there was to uh, had a great partner. His name is Toby Cadis, and. Uh, we had Steve Wozniak on the board, from, you know, co-founder of Apple, and Ted Cohen uh, on the board, and we had um, incredible technology. My partner, who he developed, and uh, basically he had everything that is anything now. He had it before, and uh, he had a high-quality version of it, whether it's YouTube or you know, Facebook or whatever it is. He he had it all, and he predicted it all years before it all started happening and uh we raised some money, I raised the money for it and uh it was sort of a typical story, you know, B movie story. Uh we raised the money, we got it developed, uh and then we needed another couple million to sort of do its final beta test proof of, you know and uh the guys wouldn't give us the money because at that time the recession hit. So um that was a sad story. Uh, yeah, and, I, and you know because mainly because everything we thought and we predicted and we kind of designed in terms of just social networking and thoughts about it and how to help fix the music business and the film business and the TV business uh, with the right technology utilized the right way, we had it all down, uh, but we didn't have the right money at the right time after the initial thing, and and we that was it. And then they decided that we were, you know taking too long and then taking their money and they were scared and stopped believing us that this was going to happen and uh, it's really sad. So, yeah, uh, got to have the capital and there's tons of businesses with that story, I'm sure. So you get in the music yeah. business, you're managing people. I mean, nowadays, um, you know, what's the main thing you're trying to do for them? Exposure or are you trying to get them uh, music? I mean, are you even trying to get them with uh, uh, record companies no. or are you going no. different different direction, which is all the stuff that we sort of foresaw happening is now happening. And ironically, my company's were always built on that sort of premise that you have to sort of do it yourself first before you go to the distributor, before you go to anybody, you have something that's already happening a little bit. And that was always my approach and philosophy going back all these years. And ironically, that's still what I'm doing because it's even more important now because you can't fool large labels into signing you, and even if you could, you don't even want to be on them uh, unless you've already accomplished enough so that when you do get there, um, you know, they'll actually promote your record. Uh, <laughs> because now they're taking, they're taking all your money now. They've got a piece of every part of the artist's career. And so, you know, basically it's trying to do as much as you can to develop an act. And my, my strength is, is having a good ear and a good sensibility and helping to develop 
and get the most talent out of somebody, given that they're already talented, and, um, you know, help them through it and, and encourage them, you know, as much as I can and not tell them that this is what you have to do because this is what the business requires or this is what you have to do because this is what radio is playing. I was always, you know, a re- rebel in that regard, and uh, I, and I... I was, you know, able to run smaller labels and have my own way about that stuff. And and that's why artists love being on my labels because, you know, I didn't tell them the cliche of uh, an A&R guy on a big label, which is you have to do this because that's what's happening. And, and so they tried to sort of squeeze them into what was already happening. Because in my opinion, if you're doing that, you've already lost. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you taking away the essential relationship with the artist that you want, which is complete trust and faith in their talent, and then tweak it as you go, but, and hopefully they listen. But, uh, you know, so uh, now more than ever, you have to put together small teams of people who know all aspects of the business, try to stay indie, try to do it yourself. You know, we have to have money. Uh, and... Um, and develop the artist as far as you can. Obviously, the emphasis is different now. I mean, you know, music supervisors are the new A&R people, you know, uh, and, and, and licensing music in all areas in any way, shape you can is still is a big business and an important business. And uh, getting a commercial, you know, getting something that's really cool. Uh, I'll song your artist wrote. You know, is is one of the ways these days to really obviously shortcut the situation. Or obviously getting some freaking viral, you know, video also. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> even that, I mean, it, tell me if you agree with this, because I, I mean, I kind of think that it's starting to be this way. Todd says pretty much the only way now that you're going to make good money in the music business is performing live. Do you agree with that? I totally agree with it. But the point is, you have to get. That's a get. Yes, absolutely. And he's fortunate since he has a, a body of work and a life's work where and, and, a, and a fan base that are, are totally there for him that he can count on a, you know a certain amount of people in every market, some bigger than others, obviously. Uh, and that is the bottom line, absolutely. But if you're a new artist, to get to that point where your live performance, you know, means something, and kids will go in and buy your, buy tickets to see you. I mean, that requires. Uh, Getting circle, quite <laughs> doing a lot of other stuff so that you know they'll well, be okay. interested in coming to see you live. But in terms of profit for an artist that they can count on, and on, and the collateral income, which is all the merch and everything else, and and or you know getting yourself a, a nice commercial or getting yourself sponsorship where you're getting paid significant money because you're because your sponsor knows that your following will buy their product and they can count on X amount of people in every market, all that stuff. Getting but how do you prove that? So you got this, this gal that sounds like Stevie Nicks, which obviously a lot of people would love to hear if that's true. But, yeah. you know, you call, you know, B.B. King down in New York or something. Well, you're in L.A., so let's see, you call whoever, the Viper Room or Whiskey Go-Go, whatever, and you say, hey, I got this gal that sounds like Stevie Nicks. They really don't care. Probably they're going to say, well, does she have any radio uh, or any viral exactly. video, or how do I, how am I know people are going to show up to listen to her? They That's seem to right. be more involved in how many people are going to show up versus how good the talent is. In, in, in the past, it seemed like when you were early in the business, the talent was everything because the the record had to produce. That's right. That's exactly right. So how do you do it? It's really hard. So you know, 
<clears throat> no, and and right. If I can't tell a club booker that I have um, enough of a local following already for this act uh, <clears throat> and convince them, you know, I mean, I can get her on an opening acts in different clubs and, and get that started. But uh, you know, uh, obviously, you have to you have to build something. You have to build interest, and you have to say, all right, well, I can't. I can't do it exactly the same way I'd be before, but the basic principle is the same, which is I got to get somehow, I got to get people, uh, people's attention on this act that I believe in. So you know, to some degree, for me, since I've been around a long time, I have a lot of credibility in this area, and I know a lot of people. You know, uh, I can help jumpstart her by saying I've got this new girl, and she's as good as you know, potentially as good as the other successes I've had, and you know. I've got a lot of credibility, so people trust me, and they'll come out and see her. They'll, you know, on the business level, they'll they'll check her out, you know, because yeah. you know uh, it doesn't because I'm helping because I'm I'm supporting it. So that gets you somewhere. She's then got to deliver, and uh, you know, and then you have to have a lot of patience, and you have to have somebody putting up some money somewhere to keep being able to keep doing ah. this. Doing this, and the thing is, it's not one thing. You can't count the difference. The huge difference is that you can't count on making the deal a big label and getting priority or whatever as the end game for all your efforts for a year or two of work supporting and trying to break an act. Because mm-hmm. whereas it used to, you know, maybe they'd sign twenty a year that way, and now there's they're going to sign one or two a year. You know, uh, I'm talking about acts unless they already have a hit somewhere, unless they have some regional action or video or some reason that people, and especially on the social networking era, that some reason people are being attracted to and talking about her on in the social networking, you know, world. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or she's got some hit in a local city or market, you still can do that, you know, you can still get a record on the radio if it's somehow great and get some unique airplay and response, that's still a possible way of doing it, and uh, or some combination of the two, uh, and whatever other opportunities you can seize. I mean, you know, in her, in Laura's case, she won the Buddy Holly Prize, the first one we ever did for, for great songwriting, so that was a nice little hook. She there won the prize. And so every time we try to get her booked and talk about it to people, you know, we could say that. And that was a, a very strong, credible thing about her. And then, Hey, Paul, uh, you have to wonder sometimes, though, if some people, I mean, I get the, you know, struggling artist, putting out your own CD, you know, yeah. almost having to be your own agent right. or manager or whatever. And yeah. But that can go on a very long time, even though you can be the most talented singer-songwriter yeah. ever, ever born. Um, but then you have people like Katy Perry and Rihanna, who, as far as I know, I don't think they write their own stuff, and and yet all of a sudden they're on every talk show, they're you know on the radio, on TV or whatever, and I just yeah. don't feel like they've paid their dues. But how do they get up there? Well, <laughs> is there an answer for that? I got an answer. <laughs> Same reason people go to McDonald's and get cheeseburgers when they have. Options. I, you know, it's a good question. It's, it's sort of big, it's a very good question. The answer is, first of all, uh, you got to have a lot of ambition and you got to keep hustling. You know, I know for a fact that Katy Perry was 
you know, every time you talk to somebody now, you know, they had some time with Katy Perry that they either shot a video with her or that they recorded some stuff early in her career. She was all over the place. She was very aggressive, very ambitious. She was a nice piece of ass, too. I mean, in other words, she wasn't just some... I mean, you know, let's be frank. <laughs> she was, you know, big tits, and she was, uh, you know... I, I mean, can I say anything I want to say here? Say anything. Anyone. Okay. And and so she was she was really cool and hot, as they say now. And uh, <laughs> That can't be and, all and it takes. There's plenty of that out there. And aggressive, all right. But, but she also had a good voice. And by the way, she did write some stuff. She, she's not, she's not a zero songwriter. She actually was involved in co-writing some stuff. And um, I apologize. So she does Katie. have some. Yes, okay. <laughs> she has some writing chops. And um, and she worked at it for a while. It didn't happen overnight for her. She was originally, I think she was. Oh yeah, that's right. She was in, like she started out as a religious, you know, like a Christian singer. What? Um, yes, yes. She was involved early when she was sixteen, seventeen in the, in the Christian singing world, and uh, absolutely, that's how Girl. she started. So then she sort of, you know, uh, and that got her in some doors in that area, and then she, you know, rebelled, and so she it was even a cooler story for that reason. And um, but once again, it took. It, it was not an overnight success for her. It took her four or five, six, seven years of hustling since she was 14 till maybe when she finally broke with I Kissed a Girl. And so, so that's one example. Rihanna, I can't even, I don't know her history, <clears throat> but um, you know, if you're a, a cool-looking woman, a lot of you know that you get into the studios and you get in with producers. Uh, and if you hustle long enough, because that gets you in the door, you know, in a lot of examples of that, uh, that's part of how it sort of starts for you. And, you you know, you do whatever you need to do, whatever you have to do to get, you know, the favor of some hot producer. I mean, all this stuff I can't stand, personally. It, it offends me on so many levels. But I'm just talking about how it really happens in a lot of examples, specifically the two you just mentioned. Um and, you know, you have to have talent. You have to be able to sing. Both of them can sing. The fact that some of them don't write as much, you know, to me, I've only ever worked with singer-songwriters. And it's the song first for me, just like Jimmy Iovine. And that's for me, you know, that's my case. Except for Natalie Cole, who's the only artist I ever worked with who wasn't a writer. Uh, and that was a great experience, but it was, you know, a drag as far as, you know, because I couldn't get the best songs. Because when I started with her, she was dead in the water from drug use and abusing a lot of labels and radio people. And I tried to resurrect her career. So the first time I made her record was the first time I ever tried to work with an act uh, who didn't write. And granted, she was sort of a household name, but she was also had burned bridges. So I reached out to the really great writers. Huh? You brought her back a little bit, though, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I... Believe me, I I would have had the whole ball game if I hadn't been cut off from Atlantic to finish our second record. But but uh, the point is, the first time I tried to get songs for her, I got great songwriters, but I got the B songs because they didn't want to give Natalie, who was cold and had drug problems, the best material. So the first album I, I put out had one hit on it called Dangerous, and the rest of the songs were just average. 
but it was enough to get her back in the scene and she stayed clean and then the second album I started getting better songs. Anyway, so getting back to, to uh, the point about how you do it, there, first of all, of course, there's no one way to do it. But you have to start with talent. I don't care what anybody says. Uh, you know, in this day and age or any day and age, you have to have somebody who's talented. Whether that talent is in their singing voice and their writing or both and their performing ability, of course you try to get it all. But, uh, you know, and like I said, I never worked, started out with singers who weren't writers. So it's a different world. It's a, more of a producer's world than it is a management, uh, you know, development artist world. And usually those artists succeed by jumping into producers who are hot and basically they make a record that's a producer's record and they're the voice. And, you know, they can have hits, they can have a hit or two. And if you're talented enough, you can break out and continue on like Rihanna did and, and even Katy Perry and uh, and uh, continue your career and build it, you know. Yeah. Well, uh, people are just... People are trying anything these days, from putting out a YouTube video to being on American Idol or The Voice or America's Got Talent, but, whatever. Yes, which is the other one Overkill, we talked about. That's the other way to do it, which is try to get on one of those shows, because more and more these days, and it's obnoxious, I cannot watch these shows. I hate them. It goes against everything I... But I have to, I have to, I have to recognize the power they have. So it is one way to go, especially if you're not a writer, you know, uh, to, uh, but if you've got a big voice, in those shows, it's usually the big voice that makes it, you know, the big dramatic schmaltzy, you know, singing all those you know, over, over emotional, you know, uh, sappy songs to get, you know, for the most part, to get the audience's attention and songs they know and they, and they go over the top doing it. And it's a joke to me, but... You know, it works, and it's exceeding. It worked for Kelly Clarkson singing for the president. Well, yes, I was right? going to say, there's certain people it works more than others. Kelly Clarkson's a great example of somebody who really was is talented. She is a writer now, or was. I don't know if she went then, but she's developed into a, a huge star, and that was her that was her vehicle. So it mm-hmm. does work. You can't count on it. But it's clearly a more powerful vehicle to break an act than it ever was. Now, now you have how many shows? You got X Factor, Voice, American Idol. That's three, and then America's Got Talent. That's four. You know, that's four huge commercial shows. Uh, that's four avenues for some new young, uh, you know, singer. Usually, you have to have, you know, generally have to have just some big voice to get on and to make a difference there. And you got to get lucky, ridiculously lucky. So that is a way to go. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, for somebody coming up, I would never say to them, oh, no, no, you can't even, don't even bother. That's not cool. I can't say that anymore. I used to. Although if you're a songwriter and a really good one, I still would say to you, don't go that route. You know, generally. Good for you. Yeah, because it doesn't always work for everybody. There's, there's always some success stories. But speaking of American Idol, I, I'm jumping ahead yeah. of myself. I want to start yeah. with the past, but I'm going to jump right in this because you were, you know, you've worked with Jimmy. And at one point, Todd was supposed to be a mentor on that show. And he shows up at that show, and they show him on TV, and Randy gives him some love. You know, Randy was on Nearly Human. and um, yep. But then it just, poof, it goes away. Yep. You got any idea what might have happened on that? Uh, 
Jimmy tell you? <laughs> Actually, I don't know what happened. Uh, I was I was absolutely myself, and I like never asked him, or I forgot to ask Eric what happened. Um, but uh, I don't know what happened. I, I mean, I thought that was great that he could be in that role. My guess is, <laughs> my guess is, you know, Todd's still Todd, and he has a. Ultimately, he's you know. Uh, his personality and his sort of style and approach, um, I guess, didn't fit what they were trying to do. I don't know if there was actually an in- incident which made them decide it wasn't going to work, or I don't know what happened. <laughs> yeah, you, you I'm glad you reminded me. Not, that, not, I, I, I don't know exactly what happened, but you can go back to 1970s and you know exactly probably what happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I rumors mean, you about know, yeah. Picking, uh, making some faces every time uh, Lopez said something, you know, something like that. They were all kind of stuff. But anyway, I thought maybe since yeah. you knew Jimmy, that was a good deal. But you know, um, I, I, I never asked him. In fact, I was, I had seen Jimmy a few weeks before. I hadn't seen him in a long time, and we had a meeting about something. And uh, and uh, he told me that was, you know, he was, he told me that was Todd was going to be. And a bunch of people told me I was all excited and. Uh, <laughs> Well, when you find yeah, out, let us know, will you? Yeah. <laughs> Next time you talk uh, to Jimmy, ask him for me. <laughs> well, I'll ask Eric. Eric. All right, well, look, I want to go – let's go way, 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 way back. Um, uh, Run album comes out, mm-hmm. and there's two versions. Yes. Was that a marketing ploy? Was that done on purpose, or was that really a mistake? What's the true story? true story is uh, it was not a marketing ploy. It was a complete accident. When Todd finished the first Runs album, that didn't have the medley and had Home Around and, you know, whatever the uh, differences were, um, um, he brought it in, and Mike Friedman, and I was working out of Albert Grossman's office, and uh, I wasn't, I was rooming with Todd, but I wasn't officially uh, in any capacity yet as working for him at that point, let me try to think. That was the American Dream. He had finished the American Dream album, and uh, and he was yeah, he was uh, he was finishing the Runs album. And uh, <clears throat> Mike Friedman, who was Albert Grossman's assistant at the time, and who had managed Todd also when he was in the NAS with John Curlin, he was John Curlin's assistant, and then he was Albert's assistant. That's how Todd got involved with Albert Grossman because Mike brought him in and told, told Albert that uh, Todd was this great talent and uh, he just wanted to be a producer for now. And uh, Albert was starting the label. So, you know, Albert said, sure, I'll meet him. And they got to be, Albert realized how talented Todd was. And um, he started working on some projects uh, for Bearsville and or working for the band and doing stuff from. Uh, Ian and Sylvie, whatever it was, Todd started being sort of an in-house producer for the new Bearsville, you know, record setup, and also for Albert's management acts, you know, Paul Butterfield, the band, and uh, Jesse Winchester, and so um, then Todd made the record. So so uh, he finished it. We listened to it. Uh, I wasn't listening to it in any official capacity, but I was just there working out of the office. But Mike listened to it and was very upset about how Todd had finished the record. And, um, you know, felt that uh, it needed remixing, needed remixing, and that there were too many songs or whatever. So at at Mike's 
you know, uh, behest, uh, Mike's, uh, you know, firm, he was very firm about it. He was very upset because he was expecting a great record, and to him it was not a great record. And uh, said to Todd, you have to go to, you, you got to fix this record. There's hits on there, it's great, um, but you gotta you gotta fix it. So he went to Nashville, and um, he that's what happened. He then decided to uh, one of the ways to fix it was he well, first of all, he remixed it, ah, um, and uh, and it sounded a lot better. And then he dropped Hope I'm Around and created a medley because he had too many songs on the record, and so that that you know in those days if you had too many minutes on a side, he cut mm-hmm. into the quality of the. Of course, initiation was, you know, an example of the extreme version of that. But yeah, uh, he took he took off the song that I thought "Say No More" is a great song, and he said that the Grossman said I don't like this stuff, so we're going to take some of it off. Well, no, what he just said no. He just said he, he just said. You know, first of all, it wasn't Albert; it was Mike Friedman, and and and, and he just said it's you got to get this right. So Todd made the decision to ch- make the changes he made to shorten the record. To create a medley out of those three songs, okay, which was a great idea because Baby Let's Swing and you know, uh, and uh, you know he fixed it brilliantly. I thought if you compare the two records, um, you know, I, I just think that um, let me just get the history on this thing. Uh, I'm trying this. If you compare the two records and listen to them carefully, the one you know with the medley on it that was the real, you know, real deal. Uh-huh. Real deal. It's just a, a better sounding record. The medley is very cool, and uh, overall, it's just a better record. So it's just a matter of like, you know, sometimes you you work your ass off, finish a record, and you think you got it, and that's why you need other people's ears at a certain point to say, look, you know, this is really has the, you know, the ability to be a great hit record, a smash, a great record, but there's a few problems here. You know, one is it needs a remix, or this song or that song makes it too long, or whatever it was. I mean, it was just sort of a general thing. I mean, he didn't tell Todd what to do. He just mm-hmm. told them, it's you know, it's not as good as it could be. Yeah. And so Friedman was saying this. Somebody who's huh? Friedman was saying this, right? But Grossman didn't have. Did he have any involvement in that, or was it just? No. Yeah, no. Okay. No. All right. Here's Mike. Here's Mike. And okay. and uh, and so yeah, exactly. And so. So then he did it, and we were all much happier with the remixed version and with the medley. Everybody thought this record had been improved tremendously from the original to what Todd did. You know, dropping the song or whatever, there was something, sometimes you have to do that, and that's that. Sure. And uh, then you'll put it on the next record. You know, as long as it wasn't a song that we thought was going to be a smash, a single, uh, we didn't want to lose any of those. But whatever those decisions were made, sometimes you have to bite the bullet and say, okay. Uh, but if, if overall it's better and it has a better feel, and you added something like a medley that wasn't there before, which really makes it cool, let's go with that. That's what happened. That's the record we released. The only problem was Ampex, is you know who were distributing Parasol at the time, had uh, pressing plants that they leased, you know that they used to press the records, like everybody did, uh, and they. And one of the pressing plants, so when we got the new record, because we had already had the other record in the pressing plants, the master had already been mastered, and, and they were already sent the uh, the elements to press it, okay? And 
was, you know, X date. And then, you know, when we had the revised version, we sent that out to the present plans, told them to delete the other mother or master in your file, and this is the one we want to master. This is a, revi- uh, a remixed, redone version of this number X, whatever the number was. And we sent them a notice to do it, as they did, whatever. And uh, they did it, except for one plant on one press didn't do it. So as a result, they accidentally pressed, I guess, about 5,000 of the wrong version. And, and and we didn't know it until they were... Because and, 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 we also had... Here's why we didn't know it. Because we also had... We were shipped tons of records of the right version. So we didn't know that the wrong version also was being pressed out. <laughs> so that there were two versions of the same album being pressed. And until they got into the stores and into the radio stations and into people's hands, we didn't know it. And um, so that's why it wasn't discovered until it actually, you know, X thousands of units were already sold of the wrong version. <laughs> but that's what happened. It was just a screw-up of, of the... Well, it would have been a good market. Yeah, could have been, you know. Well, it would have been a good record. Exactly. I mean, well, I mean, it's interesting because in later years, different records were put out, you know, with marketing ideas like that, with different versions. I mean, all that stuff later on became, you know, (laughs) marketing. uh, You You had eBay back in the day. You could have done it on purpose and then put all five thousand on eBay. You know. That's right. Your album, only five thousand. Yeah, we found. But you know, and it was particularly irksome because we got to get you a woman was becoming a hit. So, you know, we were obviously counting on a lot of album sales, and this really threw it up because, you know, a bunch were being sold of the wrong version, and it just added confusion, and fans got pissed off, of course. And, uh, you know, in those days, they got pissed off. They weren't saying, oh, shit, I got me a collector's item for life. <laughs> you know, in 30 years, it'll be worth, you know, maybe 5000 You know, nobody thought that way then. A few people did, but mostly... Mostly, I just pissed off they spent those three or four dollars in those days for the <laughs> now, for a record that wasn't, you know. Well, you do know that yeah. a company out of the UK released those both versions on CD, right? Edsel? Yes. Yeah. Music. What do you think about them doing that? You thought that was cool, maybe? Yeah, I mean, at that Crazy. point, I'm first of all, when they didn't do that until how many years later? Like last year, two years ago. Oh, last year. Okay, yeah. I mean, once again, you know, as long as they're honest about it and saying, here's, here's two versions. And uh, if they should have told the story, I hope they. I mean, I oh yeah, I yeah, it's all in. It. And they had alternate uh, alternate versions of some of the songs. Hope I'm around. I think a couple of others, but um, yeah, it came out. So this is one that um, something that uh, a lot of fans feel like is one of Todd's best kept secrets is the ballad, the second album. And there's, you know, been discussion of some legal issues or whatever, and some blame going back and forth about why this never got out or didn't get any kind of marketing. What's the story behind that album? Because I, uh, I love, love it. Yeah, no, that's a great question, and that's one of the ones that go right to the heart of my frustration and, and my own uh, sadness about that album getting lost. You know, I love that album. You know, the Ballad of Todd Rundgren was one of my, you know, I just love that record. I just thought that. Uh, you know, from the runt to that record, uh, and I was the one who insisted that he get his name on the record. I mean, the runt was a big mistake using that name. Um, 
in my opinion, and I always thought it was, but he just wanted to use it. And, you know, we lost a lot of time because there had been a lot of people who already knew who he was from the Naz days, and uh, and plus he was starting to make a name for himself uh, as a producer, and just the whole Todd Rundgren persona and personality was, was starting to really catch. And, uh, you know, I thought we wasted our time calling it Runt, but maybe she just called it by his own name. And so, um, you know, so by the second album, that's why it's called Runt, the Ballad of Todd Rundgren. That was Compromise. Okay, let me ask this real quick before you continue with this great story. Um, I think it was Moogie said that Runt was the name of the band on that album. Is that true or false? Well, once he put a band out, because we got to get to rooms that hit. And mm-hmm. so, obviously, it started creating attention to him. And even though all the time we were just telling people Runt is really Todd Rundgren, he put together a band with Tony and Hunt and, uh, and, and Moogie and called it Runt because he still wanted to sort of uh, have it be a democracy in some level. Todd always wanted to be fair and wanted it to be a band so that the rest of the members would be incentivized. And he wanted he wanted it to be a good group, you know. So the idea of calling it Runt, that was the name of the album, that was the name of him also at that point. Todd was Runt, you know, as his, quote, nickname or his, his stage name at that point. And the band was... He just made a decision to call, instead of calling it Todd Rundgren and Runt, you know, or Runt featuring Todd Rundgren as a band, he just mm-hmm. called it Runt because that's what, at that point, the name of the act was. You know, and the act, of course, we all knew it was him, but, you know, that goes to the core of his personality and what he was always trying to do. He was always trying to do the right thing. And and by calling it Runt, uh, that made Tony and Hunt and Mugby feel like, you know, it was a band, and they were sort of parts of the band and could, you know, claim that, as opposed to just being treated as sidemen or, or you know, and, and entirely was Todd's thing, you know. And even though it really was, uh, the reason Todd called that group Run was because he, he wanted, like I said, he wanted them to feel good about themselves, about it, what they were doing, and um, that's why he did that. So, which well, Paul, you're watching this. You've got this guy who... It, Woody, this, the story's the same. You've got Woody's truck stop. Todd's the guy. You go right. to Naz. Todd's the talent. Todd's the guy. You go to this run album. Now, granted, Moogie had talent, but you know at the time, the Hunt Brothers were like 15 years old or something. That's and right. Yeah. Todd's the talent. Then you go to Utopia, which they're all talented. But the story always goes that it seems like the the record companies and people were like Todd should be Todd. You don't need yeah. to do this band thing. And it sounds like with this ballad, that's where you were again. You're looking at this picture going, you're going to call it Runt because you kind of want to make the band look better and all that, but really, you're the guy. Of course. But actually, for the album, the ballad album, my attitude is call it Runt to identify with the one that had the big hit on it, but make sure you start, it's, it's you, you know. So instead of just going to the second, which actually at that point had nothing to do with the band. It only had to do with marketing the recording product, mm-hmm. and in my opinion, just to call it Runt again and then uh, and not have his name on it was a mistake. Uh, uh, but to just call it the Todd, a Todd Rundgren album would be a mistake because we wouldn't get any uh, connection with Runt, which had we got to get your woman on. So it was yes, 
bottom line is very confusing. It made it extra hard to market and sell. But um, and part of it was simply because Todd just always wanted to, you know, try to be democratic with his musicians. He wanted to try to figure out how the best way to sort of, you know, market himself was without thinking too much about it because mm-hmm. he didn't want that part of it to drive what he was doing. It was the music first, his creativity first, his genius first. I supported that completely, and that always created some problems because sometimes he was too far out in front with an idea or a way mm-hmm. to do things, and it was, all, it was me half the time sort of wanting to respect it, wanting to support it, but to try to slow it down a little so we could keep identification enough with who he was to, to get the most eyeballs and the most ears on what he was doing. Well, very difficult. It was very difficult. And, and, and uh, you know, each each part had its story. Woody's was Woody's. It wasn't his band that brought him into that band. He wound up being the star of the band because, you know, he was so talented and the rest of the guys were, you know, not as talented. And so, uh, and he was very young and, and just, you know, had the charisma and blew everybody away and helped make that band initially a very uh, attractive band in, in Philadelphia. Then they were all hippies and they got stoned and he got tired of all that, so he, he was itching. And they were very anti-becoming rock stars. That was part of the persona of the days. You didn't want to look like you were trying to be a rock star. It was almost an anti-rock star thing, you know. Later on, emulated by the, you know, the, uh, the what do you call it, early 90s uh, bands who were, you know, what they call them. <laughs> Hey, are you yeah, are you near issue. a computer or something? Maybe there's a, that yeah, that yeah. weirdness. Okay, they disappeared. Sometimes like these, it's like another yeah. conversation is going on on your phone. It's kind of bizarre. Um, anyway, I'm sorry. Oh, Go well, ahead. Well, it's gone now. It, it was. Uh, you heard some? Yeah, yeah. We could hear this like another conversation going on on your phone, but it's gone now. So, oh, please. Yeah, it's twice that's happened, but it could be this radio show. Who knows? Anyway, we want to be able to hear everything you're saying because it's good stuff. Well, yeah, tell me if I'm mumbling or... I'm like, I got this no, no, it's not you. It was something or some kind of you know weird-sounding thing that's coming through on you. Right. It was just interference or something. But Now, was there some no, legal I... issue with uh, with Ballad, though, and, and, and taking forever to get it out or promoted or something? Was there some story with that? No, here's what happened. Uh, no, no legal issue. Um, we, at that point, um, decided after the Ampex fiasco with Runt and after well, by that time I was I was very much involved I mean the bottom line was the song We Gotta Get You Woman put me on the map because it was written about me and I could go on the road with Todd and talk about it to the radio people who I already knew especially go back to Philadelphia and go to different places where the Nas had had some uh, Hello It's Me had been a hit and uh story about Todd was beginning to spread. Uh, he was this Renaissance kid who was really talented. He could do everything, play all the instruments. And I was very, you know, aggressive and effective at promoting him as a personality, as the next big star. And so, uh, you know, we got this record, and this song was a hit. Uh, you know, go on the road and tell the story. It was a great story. It was fun. And, and that's part of the reason that... Um, you know, I was able out of nowhere to to help make this thing a hit, and I was relentless about it. 
I learned the music business, you know, and that single and how to do it. And, uh, it was ex- extremely exciting and fun. And, you know, it made me part of the story because I could always tell everybody this was written about me, and that was a lot of fun, and people loved it. And the song had controversy because it had a line in it that women may be stupid, but they sure right. were fun. That just killed me that that line was in there. And it, it was at a time when, you know, there was some really violent, uh, uh, you know, reactions to that, <laughs> borderline <laughs> violent. And we had a lot of trouble with that, getting the song played because of that line. And uh, But now you probably, I mean, today, sometimes that stuff is good for you. you get, it helps get the word out about the album, right? Or no, well, that controversy, was, was, the controversy is always good in the sense that it does get people's attention where before it might not have got it. But, you know, if it prevents you from getting it on the radio once the song's a hit, then that's, that's the uh, But the line is that they may be stupid. He's talking about things, not about women, right? Yes, I know, but the thing is, it sounded, you know. <laughs> yeah, it sounds, yeah, exactly. Okay. It's just so, <laughs> huh? well, literally, to quote the song, it's, it's just stupid. <laughs> I mean, I don't even know why people have this discussion, or ever have. I mean, <laughs> I, I, the only reason I have it is because, you know, it prevented me from getting the song played on as many stations as I wanted to, and it just, just to drive me nuts, so I had to, you know. <laughs> yeah. You know. But, but of course, I mean, you know, he wasn't talking about women or, you know, it was none of that. It was just silly stuff. But, you know, silly stuff gets you uh, in trouble a lot of times. So, at any rate, we got the record out. It was a big hit, finally. It took a long time, and the album didn't sell that well. Because mostly at that point, Ampex didn't know what the hell they were doing, and they were using independent distributors. So, Albert said, we got to go to Mo Austin at Warner Brothers and, and get a distribution deal. It put Bearsville on the map. It put us on the map to hit, and that was great. But it was time to fire all the people that were working for Ampex and, and get a new distribu- distributor, or, uh, a real one. And Warner Brothers, that Albert had relationship, great relationships with because of Gordon Lightfoot and other artists he managed. Uh, and Albert was the biggest manager in the business in those days. He went to Mo and said, "Look, we, you know, we want a deal." And Mo was more than excited and happy to give Bearsville a distribution deal. And so, uh, right as we released Run Through uh, Ampex, and we, I think, uh, now I'm trying to remember. We may have tried to hold it up and just have it come out to Warner Brothers at one point. Maybe that's part of the reason that you're, you're heard these stories and thinking. But we released it anyway through Ampex because it was before we were ready to, you know, made it official with Warner Brothers as a distributor. And so uh, we first put it out through Ampex uh, because that's what the time allowed. And unfortunately, uh, but there was no legal issues that I can remember that would prevent us from releasing it. It was just uh, we were releasing it with a a dead distributor who didn't know what the hell they were doing. And 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 it wasn't... Instead of Todd there wasn't that much money being spent on it because Ampex then got wind that we were making this deal with Warner Brothers and ah. and I tried to you know obviously thought we had hits on that album I, and we came out with Long Flowing Robe I thought that was a hit and then we came out with Be Nice to Me or maybe that was the B side and I flipped it I don't remember but uh, I thought Be Nice to Me was a smash. Oh, you, yeah, great one. Am I getting mixed up here? Well, I'm gonna, 
and I apologize because I'm going to go over the place because i got so many things I want to talk to you about. So I'm, I'm going to try to focus, but this we got to get you a woman. What – I mean, I may be wrong because you were around at that time, but to our knowledge, the fan base, the first time Todd ever performed that live in its entirety was in 2011. Why do you think that is? Oh, performed that album in its entirety? No, we got to get you a woman, that song, live at a concert. Never performed live until he did it with an orchestra – that decided the set list in 2011. Did you ever see him perform uh, it live? Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, when he was doing the little run tour, he didn't do many run dates. Mm-hmm. But he certainly played it then. Really? Wow, yeah. I wish we had a bootleg of that. <laughs> yeah. There's not one of these. Well, I didn't think there was any, were many recordings of it. I mean, you know, he also had this sort of, Think about not wanting to play the hit because he wanted to be cool. I mean, there was a lot of that going on in terms of mm-hmm. his his sense of the difference between what he was doing on record and what he wanted to perform live. So clearly, that was some part of it. But he absolutely did that song. Uh, he performed that song before 2011 in, in any number of uh, contexts. Not often, but I, he certainly did it with the. There weren't that many runt dates, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one he did it in New York at um, a club that I was there. It was like the first run to show. Um, at um, how club was it? Was it the um, was it the Bitter End? Uh, I don't remember. But at, at any rate, um, he definitely did it then. Mm. Okay. Yeah, he definitely did. Definitely. Have you have you by chance uh, Doug just brought up the orchestra yeah. shows? Do, have you seen any of the video of Todd working with the Amsterdam Orchestra or the Rockford Symphony Orchestra these no, last no, two years? No. I, oh, I, you've I, got I, to I, check I, it out. You definitely I, do. And he and he does. Uh, I got to get you a woman. We got to get you a woman in it. He seems to have a whole lot of fun with it too. Yeah, uh, that's great. That's yeah. really cool. Well, I've seen the link to that. Oh, yeah, please do, yeah. Okay, so I, I should probably know this, but I'm not the, great, the greatest historian, so I'm going to keep going backwards a little bit. What yeah. happened between um, – it? you were Todd's manager at Woody's Truck Stop, and then Curlin became the manager for NAS. Where where were you at that time? What happened between you and Todd between those two? Because then eventually you came back to being right. his – Well, exactly. So <clears throat> he wanted to start the NAS, he, he, and uh, I had – Whatever money I had, I had invested in Woody's truck stuff. So, and I had a commitment to that situation. So when they kicked him out, or he left, or whatever. I mean, he he just got fed up with them. So I, I keep saying they kicked him out, but he just got fed up with them and he just left. I mean, I they knew he was starting this new band, and you know how it actually officially ended. I don't even remember, but um, <clears throat> he was. Um, he had made up his mind, and I and I totally thought he was doing the right thing, because the huge difference was he wanted to be a rock star. He loved that world, and he loved the idea of of having a big rock band. And he idolized all the British bands, the Yardbirds, and all those, you know, and and wanted to uh, to do that. So um, uh, he was he started putting together this band, and while he was doing that, before he officially had. I think Stinky. I think Stinky was the last guy. He had Carson and then Tom Mooney. I think Stinky was the last piece. But as he was putting it together, 
we did have a meeting about it. I remember Carson's apartment and uh, about and wanting me to manage them. But the truth was, I was just a young kid who had put some money into Woody's, and I was just really starting out and didn't quite, uh, you know, just learn how to do it all. Right. And I didn't, I didn't have any money, and I didn't have any sort of uh, flexibility to start managing another act if I was going to try to do the best for Woody's. Plus, I had money in it with the equipment, and I and I couldn't afford to just leave it without trying to get them a record deal. So I, it just didn't work. And 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 so at one point I said, "Well, I'll think about it." That's what Hang On Paul is all about. If you listen to the lyrics in that one, and the Nas Nas album, but. Um, you know, so I was sort of wishy-washy about it or didn't, you know, I wanted to do it because I wanted to be with Todd. I knew he was the important, he was the star, but I didn't just have enough wherewithal to really feel I could break off from the other guys and just do it because, like I said, I was too new at it and uh, I and I get screwed out of my money that I had invested. Uh, Did you know Curlin at the time? Did you know this person? No, I met him. Uh, Todd met him and Michael Friedman at this uh, show at Philadelphia Convention Hall with Moby Grape, Mamas and Papas, and uh, I think the... Jeez, who in the hell was on that bill? Mamas and Papas, Moby Grape, and I think the Who. Yes, the Who. Yeah. And uh, that's where... And so we all were at that show, and then we all got backstage, but that's where Todd met Kerwin and Mike Friedman because they were doing publicity for the Who. I think that's what happened. Or maybe they were doing publicity for the moms and papas. At any rate, John Crowley was a publicist. He was not a manager. But uh, he he stanched himself the next Brian Epstein. And so he was looking for some big flash band to create and develop like the Beatles. And, you know, and, uh, and he met Todd. And, of course, Todd was always flashing around and looking cool because Todd was all still wearing all the British clothes, you know, and nobody else was the time. <laughs> you helped him pick out, right? In Greenwich Village? Huh? You helped him pick yeah. out. Yeah. Well, no, actually, he, in the beginning, in the beginning, we could get it in Philadelphia because there were there was one store called uh, Ward's Folly that was selling a lot of British stuff, you know, clothes. Uh, at, any, at any rate, uh, and he made his granny take some trip connection uh which was a store in in, in 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 London that was selling all the cool shit. That was a few years later. But at any rate he, he was styling, he was looking cool. So he met Carlin and they and you know, and Carlin said, I'm looking for this a band like, you know, I want to do the next Beatles, whatever he was saying. And mm-hmm. uh and Todd got his attention and then, you know, um and so um and like they saw his talent, and they saw his determination, and they finally got to hear his guitar playing. Whatever, not that night, but at whatever point, and uh, decided that uh, that was, you know, he was going to manage him. So, and that he could get Todd this big deal and get all this money and be the next, you know. And so uh, Todd went for it. Mm-hmm. So that's how that happened. But yes, originally I was in the con- I'm in the conversation. Carlin kind of had a crush on Todd too, right? Did you? Yes, he did, and uh, he was a disaster because you know he he he. Look, the whole Nas thing was unbelievable. Todd, I was going to say you had to be sitting back watching this from a distance. You'd already seen Todd. You knew his talent. And you're going, what yeah. is this strategy, quote unquote, they have of not letting them play live? 
It was the dumbest thing in the world. First of all, in those <laughs> days, you know, it was like, you know, what can I tell you? The guy didn't know anything about managing. He was all about flash and star bullshit, you know, uh, you know, to create this big, you know, and then he went to all the teen magazines. Now, here's Todd. Once again, he got it, he got it all wrong with the imaging stuff because Curlin was all about just using Gloria Stavers and Sixteen Magazine and creating this, uh, this teen pop buzz for a band. Meanwhile, Todd's much more serious than that in terms of his musical chops and his intent and, uh, you know, wanted to be taken seriously. But he just fell for it because Curlin, you know, just overwhelmed him and said, I'll spend all this money and then I'll get this big deal for you, which he did. And they started a label, SGC, just for this project, you know. They were trying to do a Beatles and Monkeys thing, you know. And so Todd got just got caught up in this whole, you know, star-driven, you know, approach. And uh, it just backfired so badly, it was just not even funny. And the worst thing that happened, of course, was the image, which, you know, of the first record, which was a Beatles, full Beatles, stupid cover, uh, you know. And um, it made him look candy-ass and pop and, you know, it was all teen appeal and all... You know, in America especially, all the kids wanted uh, for rock and roll was something legit and cool, you know, mm-hmm. not some contrived teen bullshit, you know. So it was... It was huh? They kind of like, well, now that's what they want, but back then it, they didn't want that apparently, right? No, back then it was the opposite. I mean, you could have a teen phenom, but Todd didn't want to be that. He wanted to be the real deal, but he just got sucked into this approach. And Carolyn convinced him, you know, you, you know, if you're talented enough, you know, it'll come through and all that stuff. But he was dead before he started because the whole imaging and the whole look and the fact that it was all 16 magazine first and mm-hmm. and, and Carolyn <laughs> called all his favors to get articles and pictures. And so, you know, the hip kids were seeing how this was getting done and saying, fuck that, I'm not, you know, this is not, this can't be real, this is bullshit. And they didn't know enough who Todd was enough by then to think, oh, but he's really good. And so most people didn't go for it and didn't listen to the records. But, you know, some did and heard the talent and greatness of the records um, and got and, and it was a window into Todd's talent. And a lot of people in those days, you know, uh, you know, were attracted to it. But the imaging itself was it's almost like, you know, you maybe bought it and listened to it, but it was so uncool, it's like you had to hide it, you know, because... You got you. So it's... And another glaring thing about this time period, nine seven three. Oh, I just lost nine seven three. Callback. We'll let you, we'll let, we'll get you in in a minute. Um, the uh, with Woody's, I assume, and then with Nas, Todd wasn't the singer. Did you know at the time that he eventually would be that guy? You know, um, no. Uh, and the thing was, in those days, Todd wasn't a very strong singer. You know, he never sang Woody's. He had one song, um, I think, called "Tears Are Falling." And Kitty Boy, that he wrote while he was still in Woody's. It was Kitty Boy. And he sang that one song in their set. And, you know, and once again, for the Nas, he got a lead singer. And now the thing is about Todd is one of the great things about him, and I said this when I was up in Woodstock, you know, it's a thing, is that he had, he had a small voice, and he didn't really know how to sing, but he, he turned himself into a great singer because he just would discipline himself and learn how to sing. But in those days, he had a sweet voice, but it wasn't anything powerful. And so who could predict that it would turn into a powerhouse voice? 
And so, no, I did not see him. I thought that was a weakness. It was a weakness at, at, at the time of his whole thing. He was a great writer, an incredible guitar player, incredible persona. He was smarter than anybody. And uh, he could do anything except sing great in those days. But, I, I mean, I liked his voice. I just didn't I didn't see that he could sustain it and become the singer in a situation. Either did he. That's why I got thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, instead of instead of making a decision that he had to be the singer because he had not yet gotten enough confidence that he could be the singer and right. uh, hadn't learned enough about singing. I mean, I know he 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 became a great singer. Part of the reason was after he worked with Daryl Hall. Um, you know, right after that, he just you know I know someone on some level that helped a lot working with Daryl on uh, that in the Hall and album and. Being influenced by him, but and and uh, and to really learn how to sing, and he did, you know. But oh, obviously, yeah, absolutely. Well, we've got a caller I want to take because they've been holding for a long time. They've been very patient with sure. us, and but I still yeah. got a lot of stuff I want to get into, especially some embarrassing mm-hmm. stuff and some fan discussion about right. um, the fans' feelings on Todd. But let me take this call. See, they're dying to ask something. I could tell. Nine seven three from New Jersey. You're with us. What you got? Hi. Hi, Doug. It's Janice Marie. Hey, what's up? <laughs> I've been holding for a long time. That's all right. Yeah. You know what? I've been on and off. I have to say this is really great. Um, one of my favorite moments at camp was when Paul sat down and spoke to us all. It was really incredible. He, You know the thing that he said to us all? He goes, I have to give it to you all. He goes, you guys get it. Ah. Mm-hmm. You, you got you guys get it. It's incredible. Aside from me, before I even saw him and knew who he was, between Paul, George Cowan, and myself fighting for the phone at the place. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. That was such a at the library. Point. Me giving him dirty right? looks. Get off the phone, goddammit. <laughs> but let me tell you, you something. It, it just he was such an awesome storyteller. Uh, you can you can see like you pictured everything that he spoke about. You just saw it. It was like a movie. It it was incredible. Awesome. Yeah, um, we've heard really good things. It was fun. It was really fun. And uh, enjoy the rest of the interview. Right. I'm oh, that's all it. you had to say, Janice? Don't you have a well, question, now? maybe? <laughs> no, you didn't get back to me on Facebook. So. <laughs> very good. Well, um, appreciate no, the call. It was just, just everything was very enjoyable, and uh, just the storytelling is incredible. Awesome. All right, we're going to keep the storytelling going. Janice, appreciate the call. Hope Lou is doing well, doing better. All right, so, uh, Paul, um, let's let's get into the um, debate on Bearsville and Tide and who supported who and who didn't and all that kind of stuff. Because there's, there's a lot of that in these books, the Billy James books, and there's always been a lot of discussion. And um, In your opinion, uh, and I know that the campers agree with this as well based on some of the things you said, I mean, your support and Mark Nathan's support and really the label support for Tide was as, as strong as you could do, right? Yeah, I mean... Um this is a tricky one because, um, you know, with all due respect, and may he rest in peace, Moogie was kind of an, you know, had this sort of cliched view of how the business worked. Yeah. And, and you know, honestly, between you and me, well, between you and me, between all of you, 
<laughs> I feel like Connie Chung. Yeah. People who had those like views of how the business work used to drive me crazy because uh, it presumed and assumed that there was a sort of black and white way and a formula that things work, and it was, couldn't be farther from the truth. You know, the, the great ones in the music business understood that every day was a new day and uh, you, you can reinvent a way to do something every day. And, in fact, to some degree or other, if you did it the right way, that's what you were doing. And so, um, you know, uh, he didn't get it. And all his quotes and his, about the record company didn't support it. It was all bullshit. Because, you know, um, uh, it just because he didn't know what he was talking about. Uh, so for starters, you know, a, a, a business is people, you know, <laughs> Corporations are people. No, uh, a business is, uh, you know, and especially a small business, and especially in, uh, a creative business, are populated if they're affected by people who have a passion for what they're doing and a belief. And so, you know, that's where it started with me. That's the kind of businessman I am. I'm not a businessman of numbers, and uh, you know, I don't, I don't believe in all that stuff. That's not for me. I mean, some people are really good that way, and they can you know, impart a business to anything and, and throw in all their formulas and their approaches and their models, and that's how they do it. That's not how I did it. It started with a passion for something, and for me it was a passion for music. Then I wound up in the right place at the right time with the right people and then had the absolute privilege to wind up, you know, getting involved with Todd again after I had first found him in Philadelphia in his band and managed him then and who knew that was going to happen? I'd always hoped it was going to happen somehow. I wasn't rooting for a failure for it to happen, but things happen in that, and, you know. So I had the combination of passion for, you know, something which was the music and, and, a, and a gut understanding that, you know, it was all about the talent. And it wasn't about how you go about doing things and prioritizing things. It was about starts with the talent, starts with the passion of the talent. So I already had a passion for Todd's talent, and so it was then fortunate enough in somebody else's time to be able to be involved with him to help, you know, you know, promote him and make sure his uh, talent got and the messages got across to people about who this guy was. Because I truly believed he was one of the most talented guys in the music business, that uh, he was a true Renaissance guy and that he could do anything. And he was showing me that he could. So I got to know him personally and I knew that. Uh, we roomed together for years, and I watched him create these songs in a little apartment. And I just knew how talented he was, and I also knew that there was something really unique and special. And here I had the ability now to actually get involved with somebody like that and promote it. So mm-hmm. that's what I did. So, you know, Bearsville wasn't just Albert and his, you know, kingdom. Uh, it was, he, he was, as a manager, you know, he had complete control of what he was doing, he was the king and he was the god. But as a record label, he just wanted to get into records because it was a good business to be into, especially in that time. And why not have a record label and a management company? Right. But once again, if he hadn't found the right people to run it, because originally he found the wrong people to run it. He hired mm-hmm. a lawyer from uh, Electra to be the president, and uh, he had all these people who were idiots. I mean, they didn't know what they were doing. They were just sort of mechanics. And uh, they were pretentious mechanics. <laughs> <laughs> and, I was, and they didn't know what they were doing. I did. 
because I was from the street. I was completely, you know, just my personality. Right. I was completely fearless and uninhibited and, and, and was not going to let anybody who was sort of some executive intimidate me. I just didn't give a shit. And most of all, what allowed me to be that way was my knowledge and sense of the talent I was being involved with, which was Todd. I knew more about him and understood more about him than anybody did, and I knew that. And Todd instinctively knew, knew that. And so that's what drove the whole machine, you know. Now, sure. Yeah, man. Well, this is what, um, and I like to stay balanced on this. Some of the some of the Todd fans, and I'm going to give you a perfect example in a minute. Yeah. I'm going to give you one right now. Yeah. Some people in our chat room are just saying that, you know, Todd doesn't dress as cool as he did back then, and then people are getting all worked up about it. Like that, like that's you can't say that. You know, it's taboo. You can't say anything about Todd. Well, <laughs> there's. Well, I'm not. I'm not part of that. I can say. I know exactly. That's why you know I'm interested <laughs> in talking about it. Not because I want to dog Todd. I mean, we're, you you guys. This was when everybody was young, and when I used to tell Moogie yeah. this too. I mean, you know, I don't. I guarantee you I wasn't perfect at this age, and I made mistakes. And I'd be happy to admit them if somebody brought them up. Okay. And there's just a lot that goes on. But the one thing I've noticed with Mark Nathan and you as well, and you know, as Mark says that you say it anyway, and and you say it in this book, is that when Todd blames Bearsville, y'all seem to take it very personal and you get very upset about it. And you said that it's really an easy way for him to escape from taking his responsibility. Yeah, that's right. I did say that in the book. By the way, that book was so ridiculous because I spent hours, you know, on the phone with this guy, and he was supposed to edit it. And he never edited anything. So um, that's a whole another, other show we can talk about, but we won't go down that. Oh way. man, I want to read all these quotes of mine that were like it's run on sentences. I was just talking, I, I you know, and he included every you know, and the, I mean, he just he butchered it, made me look like an idiot. But at any rate, um, <laughs> no, you didn't look I like mean, an idiot. There's some good. I felt here. so stupid after you know putting all that time into it and had this guy do, do such a poor job. I mean, I admired his dedication and the detail in which he got into it, and that was great. The fact that he just couldn't spend a little more time editing, cleaning it up, fact-checking, whatever, to make it read well was just, you know, embarrassing yeah. to me. Or let's anyway. we're talking about the, the uh, Billy James book, A Dream Goes On Forever. There's two of them. Um, not Paul Meyer's book. Yeah. Okay. Huh? All right. Yeah, I just want to make sure everybody's clear what we're talking about. There's people in the chat. Yes, that's that. exactly what we're talking about, yeah. So... Um, you know, you ha- you had these comments, and and uh, one of the ones that that made me uh, caught my attention was, you know, that yeah. Todd would, uh, you know, y'all would be concerned about him with some interviews that he might do, and um, you know that he would wear some people out, and that started from Woody's truck stop on up, but yeah. just by saying those things, which I, I mean, I think a lot of people know this, but people, I mean, granted, these are people who love Todd, but they know, you know, he can sometimes he get frustrated, or whatever. You got. Yeah. Tony Rogers comes in on the book, who was a, a longtime fan who apparently Todd frustrated because he's not with us anymore for some reason. Uh, Tony, unfortunately, because he was a great, uh, great person and bootlegger with this community, but he he took offense to your comments and says, you know, and he asked this question, which I found funny. Sure. Um, you know, what are the guys who listen to Paul Fishkin doing these days? And I'm thinking, <laughs> well, Stevie Nicks and some of these bands are doing great. But he said maybe they're doing a greatest hits tour at state fairs if they're lucky. Now uh, you have, really I mean, that you is not true. Like, yeah, you work yeah. with some big, big people that are still, yeah. you know, still out there, right? The Stevie well, Nicks. Yeah, Stevie. 
Yes, it is the biggest example. I mean, you know, Todd, first of all, Todd has managed to uh, uh, carve out a beautiful uh, career in life and living uh, from his, you know, body of work. Uh, you know, there's different levels of success, first of all. So um, Todd's an example of somebody who kind of wound up being sort of a cult-like artist to some degree. Um as in meaning limiting the amount of records he could sell, you know, overall because uh, he was an acquired taste. You know, Todd is more like an acquired taste type artist. Smart people who really are into real talent and take the time and find out his level, his talent, wind up embracing him. And uh, I, that's, of course, great. <laughs> uh, you know, it, you know, but, you know, in, as with Todd... He made a lot of mistakes. Well, first of all, we were all learning on the job, mm-hmm. and uh, nothing, like I said, is black and white. The people who sort of, you know, uh, make remarks like that, they don't know what they're talking about. With all due respect, you know, um, they just don't. And and uh, I was there, and I lived it, so I know what I'm talking about. You know, yeah. it doesn't mean. But I, you know, we all made mistakes. I made mistakes with Todd. He made mistakes. Uh, the mistakes, the difference was the mistakes were um, made from trying to do the right thing. You know, we never, you know, I was not the kind of record guy, business guy, or promotion type of guy uh, to, you know, want to succeed by manipulating and conniving to do all the right things to fit a formula to make it work, you know. Either it was tied. So mm-hmm. on a very fundamental core level, we were both built the same way. We were both sort of defining kind of people and, and sort of anti-establishment in a very core, fundamental way. And especially in those days, that was the way to be. Or mm-hmm. that was the way you were if you were cool because we were fighting an established business you know, models and ways of doing things. And we were in the forefront of a musical revolution that changed everything. So you have to put all this stuff in context. So, you know, and that's the context. You know, so we weren't trying to contrive. We were simply taking a guy who was very talented and trying to get the most out of him and get the message of what this guy was trying to do across to the most people you could get it to. And so that Mm -hmm. was part of the belief thing. A lot of mistakes got made. A lot of times I wanted Todd to do things that would reach wider audience that he didn't want to do. Or he felt to do that would make it look like he was just one of the, all the other monkeys trying to make it, no pun intended. And right. he did not want to be perceived as somebody who was a calculating pop star. Mm-hmm. Even though, in my opinion, that's what he wanted. He wanted that success in notoriety, but he did not want to uh, be in a position where he was would be perceived by me or anybody else as doing anything to do that. Okay. <laughs> okay. So that, that made it very hard. Yeah. But it was also very gratifying because when we did get it across and we did prove after, you know, telling people that this is the next guy and then they finally met him or finally got to see him or finally got to hear his music and they called me up and said, you were right, this guy's amazing. I'm a huge fan. I mean, that's all I cared about, you know, that I could get that message across to people. But, you know, I couldn't call millions of people. I can only call one at a time. And so most of the time I'm talking to press people, to writers, rock and roll writers, who originally did not take him seriously. 
originally perceived him to be some kind of weird, you know, pop star. They didn't understand he was deeper than that. So we had this constant sort of battle where, you know, he didn't have a band, you know, so he wasn't out there working like the dead were or like all the, the, the 60s bands at the time who didn't care about hits. They just worked, were out there working for years and years. He had screwed it up with the Naz because John Curlin, you know, thought he should try to make it happen fast and cool uh, to create the, using the old pop star formula that was a dying formula and certainly wasn't appropriate for the times. So Todd then was stuck with that that badge that he had to wear, you know, this is silly sort of Naz experience. And the music on the Naz albums got discovered after the fact. And so then certain writers would say, you know, that marketing was atrocious, but man, this, there's some great stuff on this record, and this guy's a real deal talent, and that started coming out. So it was we had a, light, a lot of stuff to fight against, you know, which was perceptions from the media and the marketplace and the writers and the rock and roll people who were, you know, in those days, all they cared about was, you know, the British bands and whatever was cool in the U.S., but you know, the blues bands or whatever it was, but mostly, or the Doors or whatever, but mostly... Um, you know, and and but and had a knee jerk revulsion against anybody who looked like they were a pop star or trying to make it that way. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this was this ongoing battle with Todd. And a lot of times, you know, and like because I understood him and I understood what he wanted, I was very sympathetic to it. But at a certain point, especially when we got to get you one was a hit and I saw the chance to really break him wide open, uh you know, a lot of things we he I wanted to do at that point, you know, he fought. And he had this sort of, I felt, a, a sort of a knee-jerk, sort of almost subconscious, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, rebellious attitude towards anything that made it seem like, you know, uh, I was, uh, you know, asking him to do things that, you know, would compromise him. And so mm-hmm. slowly but surely I became bad guy even to him, you know, the record guy, oh, you know, and, you know, he just wants me to do that, and, you know, I'm not going to compromise myself that way, you know, and and it was very hard for me, because like I said, I understood his sensibilities, I was of that myself, but I was also in a position where I could I could sort of rationalize and say, you know, if you just do a few of these things like this, we could have it all, <laughs> you know, we can be, he can be his Elton John, or he can be, you know, the acts that were breaking in that era, and uh, instead of being a marginalized artist. And uh, that was always my attempt. And, and we, you know, we stumbled towards that success, but we made a lot of mistakes. And sometimes the mistakes were mine, and other times they were his, you know, uh, rebelling against an idea I had, which may have been the right idea at the time, uh, but he wouldn't do it because he perceived it and perceived me to be asking him to do something that was compromising his integrity, which mm-hmm. it really wasn't. It just seemed right. like that to him. So he rebelled against it. So, you know, and he became to some degree, you know, his own worst enemy. Uh, he, and his personality also was, was sort of outsized. And, you know, he wasn't a normal guy talking to... Uh, you know, writers or people, he would he he was a little snarky, and you know, especially when he was younger, and insecure, and lots of times on an interview, if the and he hated, of course, which I did too, 
uh, a DJ might ask him some dumb question <laughs> in an interview on the radio station, right? And mm-hmm. instead of sort of taking the time to sort of be <laughs> appropriate about how he would answer it, he gave occasionally gave, <laughs> yeah. gave some nasty answers and some snotty answers, and people didn't like that, you know. So they wound up not liking him, whether it was a, a program, you know, a DJ or a program director or an interviewer or a writer. And so, um, you know, that created problems a lot. Well, let me ask you this. So from, yeah. from, you know, for, you said that you've made mistakes, and, of course, you know, you believe he did. Well, was it just completely one way or another? Was there ever compromise between the record company, you, and, and Todd? Was there ever compromise? Or was always yes or no? This little, you know, that's just how it is. From both perspectives, you and him. Oh, you know, no, no, no. There was... There was a lot of, and the truth is, once it got distributed by Warner Brothers, who was a very artist-oriented label and who had a, a disproportionate respect for the artist and what their desires were. So Warner Brothers was the perfect distributor for us. They had a lot of talented executives there and a, and a nice body of artists, Neil Young, and, you know, uh, uh, who, who, uh, and a lot of respect for the artist. Yeah, and some great uh, almost, came out of that relationship too. Yeah, they almost overindulged the artist, actually, you know. And so the, the nature of Warner Brothers fit what we were trying to do. You know, mm-hmm. they weren't some like RCA or some big ass commercial label that, uh, you know, like you know, you were sort of sent, sent, looking at them who had a set way of doing things. If you do it, screw you. Matter of fact, you okay? They bent over backwards to accommodate Todd's. They didn't understand them at the beginning. So I, it took me a while to get them to understand Todd's sort of persona, personality, who he was. And um, so, but then when they realized this was a real deal, you know, they, they got on board. You know, and a lot of people want to... And once again, I, I want to say again, there's this sort of perception about the label and the, and the you know, monolithic thing. <laughs> Even Warner Brothers. It just doesn't yeah. work that way. It's hard. Union versus it's management, thing. man. That's the way it's just, you know, that's how okay. the perception is. It's their fault or your fault. That's the way it works. But, you know, Bears will also... Um, and i got to... I don't know if you were there when this quote came out, but I know you were there someone yeah. when Utopia, the foursome, was around. You know, yeah. Willie Wilcox saying that you guys, you know, you weren't big enough and you weren't in Los Angeles and you didn't care about Utopia. It was all about Todd. You know, you, got, you guys got attacked on that one as well. I mean, yeah. That, well, I mean, was, once again, I, I don't know if it was Los Angeles. Warner Brothers was in Los Angeles. What the hell he was talking about? That, that's he was talking about, yeah, he was like, you know, you guys just weren't that big and, you know. Well, actually, we did move to Los Angeles. We opened up an office in L.A. Uh, in 70, um, I think 76. Well, did you guys, I mean, did you guys try to uh, encourage Todd to break away from Utopia, or was it Utopia where y'all, you know, how, how did that? No, no, no. It, 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 to just sort of continue the sort of the one that, on the, I just wanted to finish one thing about Warner Brothers. Sure. They were not a monolithic company. They had many executives and many peers of mine were working in Warner Brothers in different roles and capacities who were really into the music like I was, who really wanted to be creative. 
and who were trying to do the right thing. And they also had jerks in there who weren't that way, who were just more like, you know, uh, uh, encounter types, you know. Uh, and you had to, you know, work your way through the, that company to just work with the best talent in there to help what you were doing. And I thought we did a great job doing that. So, um, and then, you know, we had something, anything. I mean, that was the album that we did release through Warner Brothers. <coughs> so that was an album. I mean, just to give you an example of little things that are huge, um, you know, Todd didn't want any of the information put on the back of the record. Hmm. Okay. So, I mean, he didn't want the song titles in the back. So they were all in a, on the... Um, they were all in the shrink wrap, right? Uh, uh-huh. And so, um, you know, this is the kind of stuff that little things that really hurt you in terms of marketing. <coughs> Once the shrink wrap is off, you know, where the hell were the song titles? And then Warner Brothers a year later had a big cutback and they took all the inserts out of the records. And Todd's did something, anything, and the insert was everything because it had all the information on it. <laughs> and all the lyrics and all the stories of each song. It was it was absolutely crucial to that record. It wasn't just another insert. I had a, had a fight to get that back put back in the record. But meanwhile, 200,000 records were pressed without it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these are just sort of, you know, timing and logistical things that happened. Um, as much as they were supportive, that we got screwed because that happened, you know. Mm-hmm. So... Um, that was just bad luck, bad timing. And um, then, you know, Todd didn't want Hello, It's Me out as the single, you know. And so we, we made the wrong choice for this follow-up of I Saw the Light, which was, couldn't I just tell you, I thought that was a great record. And yeah. it hit, but it wasn't. It wasn't. Mm-hmm. It took the momentum out of that record. And, uh, you know, once again, I, like I said, mistakes were made, but sometimes they were his and sometimes they were mine you know, in terms of missing an opportunity. So, and like I said, Todd's mistakes had a lot to do with his perception of nobody was going to screw with his creative muse. And he also was going very fast in his development and thinking very fast. And he was way ahead of everybody. So creatively, he was already into the next project in his head when we were still trying to market and promote the project we were on. Now, that's, not the first time that's happened with an artist, but that's a very big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, and if it's too extreme, it really hurts your ability to properly promote it because you're not getting the artist support. So certainly to some degree that was the case. The other quirky thing with Todd is uh, sometimes I'd make this passionate plea for something and he'd just walk out and get angry. But then three months later he'd come back and say he'd do it, but then it was too late. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. So it was sweet that he finally came back and agreed, but then I well, I'm going to tell him it's too late. You blew it, you know. I, I couldn't. It was like very hard to, you know. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it was so much fun, but it was so hard, and but it was so, you know, there was nothing like it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but and part of the thing was because he was so unique that both created all the excitement and passion about him if you believed in him but it also created a tremendous amount of, of obstacles in trying to get his promote his records, you know, mm-hmm. because he was sort of out of sync with what the marketing need was. 
Mm-hmm. And once again, those marketing needs weren't something that you could predict. They came up, and I, I learned early on that you had you could have a marketing plan, but mainly you try to get the record on the radio, and mainly you then seize opportunities as they developed. And it was almost a day-to-day thing. And if an opportunity developed and you had the right artist, you could call them up and say you should do this because this is the right thing to do in this moment, and the artist agreed to it and did it, that was the perfect marriage. That was not the case with Todd. You know, because it just wasn't. Because he was off doing other creative things. It wasn't. He wasn't because he was a jerk or a bad guy. It just <clears throat> he wasn't that kind of guy. Sometimes he would seize on it and agree to do it or something, um, but not but not always. So it made it it made it hard. Well, he got and to do it his way, and, and as they say, you know, because of the the production dollars, he had fu money. You know, he could do what he wanted, and that's a good way well, to that was freedom. That's that was part of it. <laughs> but true. Right, no, that's that's. That's true. Yeah, That's I've true. got no, uh, yeah. two more things, and then uh, I'm going to bring Mel back in because I've done it wrong on this show tonight because I've got so much things, so many things I want to talk to you about. i got two glaring things i got to ask, and then uh, she's going to take over for me. Um, huh? A Wizard, a True Star. Yes. Uh, Todd says no drugs involved, so I want to ask you about that. But more importantly, <laughs> Todd fans, the ones that still follow him from those days. Yes. yes. And – I wasn't around in those days, but I, I'm conflicted with this as well. The him going that route, you know, he says the record company's going nuts and this type of thing. You know, it sounds like anyway about them changing. But the Todd fans love this album as if it's the best he's got. Now, commercially, it was something anything. Fans love a wizard because of a wizard. I think he probably has this cult hardcore audience that still follows him today. So was it really uh, as bad as it seemed at the time, in your opinion, or were you freaked out about it, and how do you look at it today? Well, at the time, I loved this record. I mean, I loved The Wizard of True Star. Uh, this was an example of um, the timing being so crazy. And these are yeah. one; w- these are once in a... Uh, lifetime circumstances and situations that created problems that, you know, like I said, you can't plug this into any formula. First of all, I loved the record. I thought he was making his Sgt. Pepper's, you know, whatever, his version about it. And ultimately, it was a, a work of genius and it confirmed to all the people I was telling that this guy was really a genius and not just a pop songster, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this album was going to be the ultimate confirmation of that. So I loved it emotionally and personally. The problem was <clears throat> that uh, two things. We were, that something, anything had come out. We we had an initial hit with it. We fought, screwed up the follow-up. And then um, we kind of let some time go uh, to figure out what the hell we should do with it and w- whether we should release more singles from it. Mm-hmm. And in that space of time, he was already making The Wizard of True Star. So he was in the studio making it. And uh, he was completely into it. So he was <clears throat> already past something, anything. Uh, and unfortunately, because we couldn't follow it up and have multiple hits right away on it, we lost momentum on it. Then the whole That's Me thing happened. <laughs> and that was really... <laughs> something that happened be- 
seen me and Ted Cohen, who was, you know, said he could get it played in Cincinnati, and I, I don't know if you know the story of that. So I, this is, uh, um, you know, we sort of conspired to get it released uh, just in Cincinnati, and uh, Todd didn't even know it at the time. You know, he was too busy making the record, and, um, and we got to put it out in Cincinnati because we knew this guy wanted to break the record, and, and uh, it became, a, you know, then it became it started becoming a hit. And um, by that time, so once again, this has to do with timing and creative uh, muses of the artist. So we had the song finally to resurrect. Uh, um, now, like I said, Todd was against us releasing "Hello It's Me" as a as a single from something anything, but once we created. It became number one in Cincinnati. There was nothing he couldn't stop it. I mean, you know, you can't, you know, there's no sense at that point stopping it. Um, so, um, you know, and then it became a, a, a number one record. Actually, you know, it was actually top five, but it was top right. three, whatever it was. It was huge. It's huge. Uh, it was big as it was just as big as it could be, and it became a classic. And uh, and then something, anything took off again as an album, mm-hmm. but. Um, once again, normally then you have another hit off the record, you're supposed to tour on the record and all these things you normally do, and he was in making this groundbreaking, uh, uh, you know, album that was significantly different than, you know, uh, an album full of pop tunes and rock tunes, you know, even though something, anything itself was unique and special because it was a double album, and it had rock songs and pop songs and a live side, and it had its own wonderful personality to it. And people were, many people considering that that was a classic record at the time, you know. We just hadn't sold enough of them, you know, to make enough of an impact and um, in establishing Todd. And at that point, he wasn't touring on the success because he was finishing to Wizard of True Star, you know. So, <laughs> you know, once again, yeah. this is just a sense, a, a product of time, timing, circumstance. Nobody's one person's fault. You know, uh, it just happened how it happened, and it goes back to about people that drive you crazy matter. in the record business. They get, you know, they get one thing and that's it, and that's how it's one way, and that's how it is. Just a lot of different factors come into play that end up making history, and it's not always just so black and white. And there's one person or that person, just that's different right. things come into play, and that sounds that's exactly what, what happened here. I mean, you know, and that's the bottom line. If I ever wanted to impart any bit of information or wisdom about how it works, that's it. And anybody who doesn't get that or nods their head and says yes and then asks a question that as though they completely, you know, ignored what you just said. <laughs> so, you know, he still, you know, tries to sort of put the square peg in the round hole of what they think it is, is an idiot. There are the people, there are the people I, I don't like and have very little to do with because they never learn. And some of those are <laughs> some of the fans that like that. But, you know, I yeah. love them all because... Because they all got what I got about Todd. So, mm-hmm. but you know, once again, like you said, they one guy thought I was, uh, you know, what else did I have? Well, I had Natalie Cole, Stevie Nicks, who's a classic icon. I had Twisted Sister, who sold millions of records. Yeah. Uh, I had Foghat, who was a multi-platinum act. Uh, I had Poe in the '90s, who uh, sold 700,000 records in her first record, and who was considered a breakthrough artist at the time. And I had a lot of success. So. You know, Don't take it personal, because uh, my main point on that whole thing was is that Todd's following yeah. uh, 
some of them, especially the ones that have been around since your days, love him yeah. so much. Yeah. Anything that is said that might question anything he's ever done, and they get in a defensive mode and attack. And that's exactly what happened here because if if he would have taken any time to look into your career, he would have known you did a lot. It wasn't a statement about you. It was a statement that Ty can do no wrong because <laughs> I'm a big fan. Right, that's the way it that, is. It, 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 I get it, uh, but you know, people like that. I have. I can't <laughs> even relate to people like that. Those are people that cause all the the, the trouble there is in the world. You know, people like that. But <laughs> you know, Ty. that's the, you know, really. Yeah. I mean, that's the truth. You know, the fact is, Todd uh, is a fucking genius and a flawed one, like all of us. He's a human being. He's got flaws, and a lot. And some of those flaws helped uh, prevent him from being as big as he could be. But it's his life. And he's had a very big and successful, wonderful life. And I don't regret one minute of it from my involvement with him. And uh, but I'm not willing to, you know. Yeah, I, I think it's great to hear. Him, him, him is perfect in God, because you know. Well, look, yeah. we did a interview with uh, Roy Firestone interview Todd, and he asked him, you know, do you ha- do you look back having regrets? He's just like, no, I got. Look at this fan base I got, and I'm happy with it. So he's happy, exactly. you're happy, we're happy, it's all good. But it's I had so much fun when I went up there, you know, to do that thing. I, I it was one of my. I just loved doing uh, what I did that day, you know, that, uh, at, at the uh, oh, the <clears throat> at the camp, you know. Yeah, we could just, talk to you. I mean, I could do two, three more shows with you, but I, I do want to let Mel ask her question because we only got about seven minutes. But I just want to ask you what your. Okay. Uh, this is my last one. What's your? Uh, if you have one, I don't know uh, when it came into play, but. Do you know Eric Gardner? Were you around when he became Todd's manager? Do y'all have a relationship? Yeah, I mean, yes, I was definitely around. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't like him at first because, you know, he came in there. He thought, look, his perception is another cliche, and that, you know, all the problems we were having Todd with the label and Warner Brothers were our fault and that, Todd wanted a manager to come in. And Todd's reason to change from us managing him to somebody else was valid. But mm-hmm. he was right about that. It was smart to go outside to get a manager to help, you know, add perspective and, and to help him. And that was a smart move on his part. Eric's personality initially I was, you know, I didn't like. I've grown to like him very, a lot in the last bunch of years. He's been, you know, I actually introduced him to his wife. and you know, But, um, um, at the time when he took over, you know, his idea was I'm going to come in here and, and make the record label do the thing, you know, and I was a bit of a punk and rebellious and sort of almost, <laughs> you know, it, the very thing that Todd brought Eric in to do, I almost, you know, sabotaged, you know, just be, out of personal, uh, in, you know, animosity. <laughs> I hate to admit that, but to some level that was true. But but mainly because, because Eric just thought it was a case of, of the record company screwing up, and if he came in and fixed it, Todd would be huge again. But the damage had already been done mm-hmm. in terms of his career and confusion to it, and and you know, too many missteps. And we didn't even talk about Utopia because that was another big piece of uh, you know things that helped uh, were wonderful on one hand, but helped screw things up on the other hand and add more confusion. Yeah. Well, it comes around, goes around, because um, a lot of fans now blame Eric Gardner for to- all Todd deals. <laughs> yeah. We know from tonight's conversation that it's not one thing that's responsible for anything, but it's uh, it's funny how that comes around. It's always right, somebody. One thing I want to say is, you know, no. the fact somebody's got to get the finger pointed at him. <laughs> yeah, but guess what? When you manage somebody for uh, 20, 
when you manage somebody for 30, 30 years, get it. some yep. years, you're doing a lot right. Uh, you're doing yeah. a hell of a lot more right. There's <laughs> very few managers that have lasted that long with anybody. And the fact that Eric lasted that long is a testimony to the great job he's done. And and which is managing somebody who is not easy to manage. I mean, it's not an easy job. It's not an easy job anyway. Let alone having somebody who's as complex as Todd is. Yeah. But he did it. He's doing it. He's great. So like you know, give me a break. Anybody who criticizes him because it doesn't happen that you manage somebody that long. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. Well, it's not him. They'll find somebody else. But um, it's always. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, Mel's got a question. We've got four minutes, so I guess we could hopefully perfect time to answer it. Mel? Okay, it's actually a question from our chat room that we've had going um, this okay. whole show uh, from Ed, who's asking about the great dog debate. Do you know something? Oh. <laughs> Tell the story. We want to hear. Oh, my God. This is one of the craziest things that ever happened. And and this is an example of Todd being a jerk and, and really screwing something up. Uh, he, uh, One of the great program directors of one of the biggest stations in the country, Scotty Brink at WRKO, was a good buddy of mine and loved Todd. He was originally from Philly, so he knew Todd from Philly. We were very close friends. He called me Leroy Boy. You know, he idolized me and just, you know, wanted to be me, Scotty, sort of. On some level. Anyway, a wonderful guy. A wonderful guy. And uh, I shouldn't say he wanted to be me. I don't know what the hell he wanted. All I know is uh, he, he loved Todd. He loved me. And it was one of the biggest stations in the country. And to have that station play Todd's records was crucial. So when, to reinforce it, I took uh, Todd up to Boston to meet him. And we had lunch. And, you know, one of the problems with Todd is when he's meeting some sort of top 40 guy, he sort of just tended to lump them all together. And to some degree, these top 40 guys, you know, hey, Todd, how are you doing? You know, they had that sort of voice and that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. he, he 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 didn't respect it too much, Todd, even though Scotty was a great a great guy. Uh, and so we had lunch. And my, my goal was to just reinforce that relationship and have Todd have a special relationship with Scotty. And we'd be his, you know, forever. We'd have him as a guy who supported us in a very important market with a very important station. And so I was just doing my job, you know. And so we went and we had lunch, and all of a sudden they started talking about their dogs, okay? Now, it wasn't a normal conversation where one would say, I got this cute dog, and he's the greatest, and tell stories, and the other person would say, oh, that's wonderful. And I got my dog, and he does this, and we get that, 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 that. Oh, isn't that great? And they bond and dog them, you know, stories. Yeah. Wrong. Todd, out of nowhere, started saying things like, Oh, no, no, no. My dogs are better than yours. Uh, my dogs do this, that, the other. No, that, like, he, 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 it's like, you know, he had to tell Scotty that his dogs were better than his dogs. Oh, no, 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 no. That's nothing. You know, in other words, it's like having this wonderful mutual animal-loving, you know, discussion about their favorite dogs and how wonderful that was that they each had that. Todd felt the need compelled to, for whatever ungodly reason, to sort of compete with Scotty about who had the better dogs. <laughs> and that was it. <clears throat> End of relationship. Oh, really? And But it's interesting. And I, I didn't know what to do. I, I, I was trying to stop it. I didn't know what the hell to do. So I let it go. And on the way back, Todd said, we were walking back to our car. And Todd said something like, uh, I guess I might have screwed that up, huh? 
said, uh, maybe. Oh, and the next crap. day, Scotty called me and said, don't ever do that to me again. I never <laughs> want to see that guy again. He's like completely. It was just horrible. There's Todd doing it again. Just shooting. Well, once again, but, I don't want to say, you know, he just did it that one that time. That one, he did. Sure. And, and, you know, I mean, look, once again, it happened. What can I tell you? Yeah. My my goal to, to sort of strengthen what was already a strong relationship and set it to life wound up a complete and utter and unmitigated disaster. So, <laughs> because Todd felt compelled to compete in this conversation about who had the better dog instead of, you know, having equally loving each of their dog stories. Despite so all that, we still story. are interested in Todd Runner. We still listen and we still like him. So that's about pretty much sums it up, I guess. <laughs> Paul, we appreciate you being on. We're we're out of time and uh, going into okay. archives now. We're not live I, anymore. I hope you feel better, Paul. Go get go well, take some Nyquil now. I'm yep. gonna. You bet your head. So thank you, thank you guys. Let's, let's really do it again sometime. It. Okay, man. All right, I'm done. Hi everybody, this is Todd Rundgren and you're listening to RundgrenRadio.com. You are the creme de la creme, my friend. Yeah, thank you so much for your support. We love you, Gabriel!